Welcome to the arena. My name is Greg Sindelar, and I'm your host. We are uh, honored to be here today with one of our one of my good friends and and uh, advisors here at TPPF, former state legislator and uh, current uh, consultant here at TPPF. Yeah. Good friend Ron Simmons. Welcome, Ron, to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited about being here. Yeah, uh, we'll try not to go for two hours, but we'll we'll see where the conversation uh, leads us. But the most important thing we we have to discuss is you have a book, and so I'm going to show it to the camera. Yes, I do. And so um, you know. So uh, one of the things that we want to do in this podcast is get to know people a little bit better that are kind of in the arena making and shaping policy here in Texas and across the country. You've written a whole book basically about your your life and the lessons you've learned. Mm -hmm. um, so I think maybe that's a good place to start is talk a little bit about your book, why The Little Red Wagon, and uh, we'll kind of go a little bit further from there. Well, you know, most of us as children had a wagon, right? In fact, I saw the picture in your wall of your kids sitting in their red yep, wagon. Right. And most yeah. of us had something called the radio flyer. And so I tell the story actually about the radio flyer in the book. Uh, but as I, you know, as you know, all of my kids are grown now, we're having grandkids, and you begin to kind of look back on life and first of all, you realize how fast it went, <laughs> but you, you look in it a little bit more philosophically. And so, I just was thinking one day about, you know, life is like a wagon in that there are different parts of the wagon that have different roles. And at different times of your life, you represent a part of that wagon. Like sometimes I would take the handle because I was leading the show. Yeah. Sometimes though, I was just the cargo, right? I mean, I talk about it in the book, my first election, I'd never run for public office before. And so I told my consultant, I'm gonna do whatever you tell me to do this first election. And so I was just the cargo, right? I needed to learn that way. And a lot of times we think when we're holding the handle in one area of our life, we need to have it in all areas and we can get messed up doing that, so. That's absolutely right. And it's hard kind of knowing where you should be. I think you make a really good point about that and um, kind of understanding that it can oscillate, right? Like, you know, here at TPF, sometimes maybe I'm pulling the wagon, but yeah. you know, sometimes I'm, I'm pushing, sometimes yeah. I'm just the cargo myself. And yeah. so I think as leaders, like it's, it's, it's hard to figure out that it's not always the same. And we need to realize that, right? We need, that's one of the things I ask people to do in each chapter, I have kind of a takeaway. Mm -hmm. And one of the th first things I ask is, really look at the five areas of your life for, I, and I go through spiritual, family, financial, relationships, whatever, uh, and business. And where are you in all of those, right? Right now, and are you in the right spot? Yeah. So anyway. So in the book you cover some of this, but um, you grew up in Arkansas, and definitely not from, from means, um, but you became a very su uh, successful in your life, your business and ran for office. Can you take us a little bit uh, briefly through kind of your, your background and, and ultimately to why you decided to run for office and enter this world? Yeah. Um, because you absolutely didn't need to, mm -hmm. um, but uh, I think Texas is better for it. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Well, yeah, you know, my mom and dad were public school teachers, so uh, I think we did grow up in a, our, my brothers and sister and I grew up in a learning environment for sure. And we were very much, it never was a, guess whether we'd go to college or not. So we kind of were always in that learning type mode. And as a middle child, you know, we always want to stand out for something, right? So so I was motivated to do something. And so I, I uh, was not 
that interested in you know being a school teacher or something like that not because I didn't like it because I I saw my mom and dad struggle financially and I that was a big issue for me and so I got involved just by happenstance in business ended up going into the financial business that wasn't a necessarily a passion for me my passion was taking care of my family financially okay yeah. and that was just an avenue and so we started our company and we invested money for retired commercial airline pilots that was our niche and you know we and we built that and built that and i got to a point where i did not have to be there every day i had some other good partners and i had moved from ceo to chairman and I'd always been interested in public policy. I, I did not, I mean, I was never like a precinct chair or anything like that, but I did donate to causes I believed in that were important to us and, and followed, uh, I would say, national more than state. In fact, I'd only been to the Capitol one time before I got sworn in. Are you serious? Yeah, only uh. one time, it, which is <laughs> fascinating, right? And so I, it, I was sitting at my home office and I read the paper one Sunday morning and it said Burt Solomon, State Representative Burt Solomon's is retiring. And that was the district. I knew, I knew who he was because I'd voted for him. That was my district and everything. And I, something, because I was kind of searching for what's my next move here. Yeah. And so I, I uh, went up, Lisa, went to my wife, Lisa, went to see her upstairs. She was in her little office. And I said, you know what? I think this is what we need to do. And it didn't take her any time to agree. And then when that's happened in our marriage, we've now been married 43 years, that's usually a good thing, right? Because <laughs> there's plenty of times where she was like, are you crazy? You know, but on this one, she was all in. And um, I thought, and it wasn't really about, I knew I really wouldn't like the political side of it. Yeah. I just, it just, that wasn't me, but I knew that I would love the policy side. And so we just dove in and I thought I, what I wanted to, I wanted to do two things. One, I wanted to see where I could make a difference, okay, as a statesman, right? I, my first election I ever voted in was Ronald Reagan, 1980. And I bought into his, you know, shining city on a hill. That was, I grew up in my 20s when he was the president. Yeah. And then so, and, H.W. And Bush was the president. So I kind of, that, that era for me of, of was getting my life started was those people leading the country. Yeah. And so I became indoctrinated in their beliefs. And therefore, that made me interested in seeing if there's something that, that I could do. Yeah. And you know, I think that's so important that have your spouse all in with you because I don't know if you could Yeah. if you could survive in this if your spouse is, is not with you. Well, we've seen it, you know, and I've seen it at the time I was here and the, you could see that in some some of those relationships with some of my colleagues it was really a struggle for them. Really yeah. something they battled all the time and it's so hard to do this job because it's such a confined period of when you're actually doing the work, to have challenges at home makes it virtually impossible, yeah. you know, to be good at that. Yeah, so I think that's absolutely right. And I have so many questions. So, but I wanna kind of go back. So you, your second time to the Capitals when you were sworn in and uh, you served uh, for th three sessions, right? If I have that right. Three terms, yeah. And, um, what is what's the one thing that you learned about the process that surprised you the most? Well, I'll tell you what, a couple of things, okay? Uh, you get there that first day, you get sworn in. Uh, it really is, it's probably outside of having your kids and getting married, it's probably the most surreal experience mm -hmm. that I've ever been a part of. And it doesn't hit you, it didn't hit me until I was inside that brass rail 
I'm looking at the other members and their families and looking at, you know, the people on the dais at the time. And I'm like, wow, this is, and you realize that the desk that you're sitting in has been there since the Capitol was built, yeah. right? Because some of the desks are like that, some of them are, but some of them are, and mine happened to be that. And you open the Bible of all the people that have signed it before you. And, but you look around, you think, okay, I was born in Louisiana, raised in Arkansas, how did I even get here? How, I, these guys, if they really knew me, they would kick me out right now, right? Imposter syndrome. Yes. But what I also learned is by probably about, I don't know, 100 days later, I look around and say, you know what? I might be the smartest person in this room. <laughs> so so, so you, you realize that it's a, I, the, the interesting thing to me is that through all of the election stuff, all of the, you know, all of the, is that that body is absolutely a fair cross section yeah. of Texas. And I don't know that I would have guessed that. I would have thought it would have been uh, much, not quite as diverse, right? Yeah. That, that politicians were all the same, but really is. And so what you don't like and what you like and everything's all represented right there. So it's fascinating. Well, especially in the house, you know, with 150 members, right? Like, it's so a, it's, you get a, a broader cross section and you have 150 personalities and no for, for 50 perspectives. And so getting things done, I think is difficult. And you know, right now um, uh, we're kind of in the crunch time of, of, of session. There's, there's only, uh, gosh, less than two weeks left, 12 days or so left in, in session. So w what do you, you know, what was what was this time like when you were a member and what are members going through right now? Um, and then the the add on to that is what do you think is going to happen over the final days of this session? Well, for me, I, I, I remember the first um, my first session on the last day that you could hear House bills. Right. And <laughs> being a member of the House, those are yeah. important to you. And. I had no idea what to expect, you know. I see my, I've got bills on the calendar, man. I'm excited about it, you know. And I don't understand the fact that they're on page 23 makes a difference, <laughs> you know, and what have you. And so I, I hated that day. Yeah. Because in every session I hated it because it was not a good way to make public policy. It just wasn't the way it's set. Now, that's the way it's set up and, yeah. and everything kind of works out. But the, the thing is, remember, our system is set up not to pass bills. Yeah. It's, you know, I'll never forget. It's just good when you have 8,000 of them filed. You're not. Yeah. Speaker Strauss told me the first time, he said, Ron, there's good news and bad news. The bad news is 4,000 bills will be filed. The good news is damn few pass. <laughs> and that you know what? I thought that is true. That's just the that's the way it's set up. Now yeah. this this time of the session, so now now we're really in the last ten days or so, ten or twelve days, and um, it, it the the heated ideas that haven't passed. There's always a little animosity between the House and the Senate, <laughs> no matter who's the speaker is and who's the lieutenant governor, there's always a little bit of animosity there. And and there's some important things, you know, the way it works in the House and the Senate is low numbered bills like House Bill 1, Senate Bill 3. Those are all very, those are priority bills, right? Yeah. And so what will happen is because they have to pass both houses, the House bill has to pass the Senate and vice versa, is that 
the House will hold on to some important things that are to the Senate, and the Senate will do the same for the House in an effort to use leverage to negotiate between the two. Yeah. That's not uncommon. It's not something we should get overly concerned about. It just and it really, it, it it's very internal. Those of us that are now on the outside, we have very little impact at this stage because it's between the members. Yeah, and and it makes some of, it makes us nervous a little bit because we've got some things we're interested in. <laughs> in some way, it makes the governor nervous okay. too, and all that. But but that is the way it works. Okay, and uh, I I will imagine that you'll see a lot more back and forth. But usually, when the dust settles, virtually all of the priorities get done. Now, this particular session. Uh, I'm especially looking at it from this point of view. I think that it could be that some of those don't get done. You know, some of big priorities that are for the House and for the Senate uh, that they don't get done, and and that might cause the governor, and he's the only one that can do it, yeah. to have the opportunity to call a special session. Uh, there are things like school choice that are we know are very important to a lot of Texans and to the governor and to a lot of members as well. And I think that we probably have agreement that we need to do something we just have to figure out what to do and i'm not sure there's enough time left in the regular session to do that there might be but you never know but and then we have this whole property tax issue right and that and that both sides want property taxes to be less or at least have the growth be less and but we've got different ideas on how that should happen yeah. and you know that's going to come down in the next few days. Uh, there's a there's a bill on the floor in a couple of days, and we're going to see how all that works out. And so, I, I do know that once we get past, you know, uh, like the last three or four days are really just conference reports and all that. So the last three or four days are pretty non-stressful, right? Yeah. Uh, there's not much going on. They're just trying to wrap things. Unless somehow things they up. vote down a conference report. Yeah, unless they do that, which. They they don't do that. Typically, very often. typically they'll do yeah. so, you know yeah. they'll do something like that. And so, uh, but right now, probably for the next three or four days, pretty pretty intense, pretty doggone intense. Yeah, I think that's right. And so you know, obviously on uh, Sunday, uh, the the governor had mentioned that uh, on the school choice side, yeah. if 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 he if it if the house bill that was currently being heard moved, mm -hmm. it wasn't going to be good enough, and he would go to a special session yeah. on it. So I, we we can talk about that, but what I really wanted to ask you about was uh, how does that strike members when they hear um, I'll call special session on these things how does that play into the negotiations that are happening right now how does that um, how does that motivate them I, I'm just kind of curious from the member perspective how how that affects them well it depends on whether or not their spouses heard it from them or heard it on the news yeah. beforehand. So if they <laughs> goes back to how important the spouse is. If they heard it on the news, it's a very defensive posture. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. If the, if the member can deliver the message to their spouse, they can usually they're politicians. Yeah. They can massage that, honey. It's it's going to be okay. You know, I probably don't even have to be here very much if it happens because I'm not on that particular committee. But I'll. It's a it's a it by this time of the session, it's it, it's something that's that members don't like to hear. Yeah. Uh, now, if you're one that's really engaged in that policy, let's say that's called the school choice policy, there are members that are super engaged in that, right? They, that didn't bother them as much, right? Because they want to get the policy done, right? But for the rest of them, say the people that aren't on the committee and they're just going to end up voting one time, right? They're just basically going to vote. Uh, they're not they're not as excited about it, although they also aren't required to spend as much time because what they'll do is they'll come in, you'll check in, they'll give the committees 
they'll go meet and then there'll be days before they won't you know won't come back yeah. until there's something to come back for now if there's a lot of items on the deal like my was it what session was it 2017 there's like 20 there's 20 something items, items on there so. i carried two of the governor's bills yeah on that and so it was busy and they were both controversial bills uh and busy 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 and so I, I think that's something they would rather not do because remember how many special sessions they had last time when the, Democrats, the Democrats went left, off yeah. and that so uh, and that one's tough because then all those Republicans they're they're just having to hang yeah, out because yeah. you're trying to they get had to quorum. Quorum. yeah so they I think it was pretty tough now what you hope happens as a result of that is that the leadership of, of, of the House and the Senate gets together and says hey let's get something worked out on whatever the outstanding issues are that might cause the governor to call a special session before the special session. Yeah, because uh, when session ends on the 29th, you'll probably have a, well, even before, you have a good idea of maybe the things that didn't get done that would likely lead to a special. Obviously, right. school choices once already been signaled, but there could be, could be other things. Could be others, yeah. depending on what happens with the grid, border security, um, uh, 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 economic development, things mm -hmm. like that. So, um, so do you see th those conversations start happening almost immediately? Of like, hey, when we come back in, this is what we need to look at. This is yeah. probably where, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, I think so. Yeah, okay. I think so. So, uh, in your book, one of the things you talked about is you know kind of like show horses and work horses, and um, I thought that was uh, really interesting because you're talking about different types of uh, not not just legislators, but also just people generally. There are people that are out there look at me, I, I yeah. do all these great things, and right. there are people getting all the work work done. Um, you know, obviously you see that in the legislature. So can you talk, can you maybe expand a little bit more on your your metaphor there, but then also talk a little bit about what, what makes um, uh, legislators uh, particularly uh, effective? Yeah, well, first of all, one thing that I did learn, and I think I learned this from my other business, is that uh, this is a relationship business, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, the other thing you learn is that most of the issues they vote on are not partisan. Yeah. If, you, if you look at all, you know, however many bills pass, a lot of those will have will pass in a bipartisan way because they're, you know, they're 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 things they're like you know, just general things that aren't partisan. They're not, they're not mostly social issues are the partisan ones. Yeah. And so maybe it's about building a road or something like that. So you find that out. But the other thing you find out, it's about relationships. You know, one of the things that I did when I first was elected after I got down here, I went and met with all 149 other members individually. It took me 70 days to do that. And they weren't long meetings. They were 15-minute meetings. I didn't have any agenda other than I wanted to get to know Greg. Yeah. You know, because you got elected just like I did or whomever, right? Yeah. And that really made a difference because when I had policy issues, that I needed to talk to them about, we already had a little bit of relationship. And I think that's what makes someone effective. People know pretty quickly whether or not you are a serious policy person or not, or whether you're just there, you know, everything is about being reelected. Yeah. And, and so I tended to gravitate towards people that were more policy oriented. And I saw those, what I found is kind of like anything else, it's the 80-20 rule. There were 80% of the people uh, you know, they don't really want to do that much. They like being elected, but don't want to do much. 20% of the people do most of the work. And I like that because it, it meant you had an outsized effect on things. Mm -hmm. And so I just found that you need to work across the aisle. 
even when you disagreed, you did your best to do that. And when you disagreed, whether it's from the front mic or the back mic, you always were respectful. And there were people that just weren't like that. They just wanted to get up there on the mic and, you know, get on the video and for people back home and just, you know, they just never accomplished anything. They think they accomplished something, but you know what? It did, most of the time it didn't even matter. People pass bills no matter what. Yeah. And uh, I, I just never, it's not that they didn't like the people, okay? In fact, in a lot of the people that were doing that in my era, I agreed with on 95% of the issues, but I just didn't like the method. I just, that just was not me. Yeah, I understand that. And, uh, you know, as a policy person, um, which is, I think, why we get along well and why mm -hmm. uh, you work so well with TVPF, but sometimes it can be hard, right? Because you, the legislative process is about compromise and you have all of these differing perspectives. And so I, I don't know if there's ever been a bill passed that I'm like, this is the perfect bill. I can think of about a lot of bills that I've celebrated and been happy with. Um, but there are things that I would still maybe yeah, want to change with yeah, them personally. Yeah. So how, as a policy person, how do you how do you come to terms with that as you're working through what can often be a more of a political process in getting good policy passed, right? And and how do you ensure that you can actually move it forward and you're not letting, you know, at times perfect be the enemy of the good, but also knowing when to stand on your principles and, and say, no, I won't go that far. I think the first thing you have to understand when you get into this business is that we, that we're making policy in a political environment, which that in itself makes it very messy, right? In a dictatorship, you don't have to, you make policy, there's no political environment, mm -hmm. it is policy, right? And so I think you have to go in it not expecting their, your result to be perfect. If you go in it believing that you're gonna get everything you want perfectly, then you're gonna be disappointed more than not. But you also have to decide where, where are my non-negotiables, right? For example, uh, I'd, I'd pass the uh, no more one punch straight ticket voting, right? That was important to me. I, as a policy, I saw that we were electing people that hadn't done anything to win somebody's vote other than put a, a R or a D by their name. Yeah. And that was something that just, uh, that's just not right. Okay, yeah. I just don't think that's right. I think we elect better people if people have to win your vote in yep. whatever manner they do. And so, my principle was I was not going to bend on that, on that particular issue. But in the bill, okay, the effective date, which you never even think about that, right? I'm thinking, okay, most bills, when you pass them, they're effective by September. You know, usually September 1, unless you've got 100 votes and they're effective immediately. Uh, so when it got over to the Senate, the Senate said, well, let's don't make it effective this coming election. Let's make it effective a year from now, right? After that. And I was like, okay, you know, let's get get it passed. They, and the reason is there were some statewide elected officials that were afraid that not having it might hurt them. Now it didn't. And yeah. I knew it wasn't going to. I looked at all the data from other states that had done it. But but in order to not, I wasn't willing to kill the bill over that. Yeah. I mean, it just wasn't. Now, some people say, you know, that I lost my next election. You know, and some people the say the cost of that, that was the Beto deal. And so uh, some people say, well, you know, everybody benefited from that bill but you, <laughs> Ron. Uh, but, you know, it's still the right thing to do. And that will have a lasting effect of policy. So I think you just have to know where your red line is 
and have to make sure that that red line is a true, some truly important, right? Has to be important to the policy. It can't be just important to you personally. It has to be important to the policy. And so th that's, where, and I think that's the same thing we have to decide on. The tax policy that they're talking about, school choice, what are those red lines, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's really, really good counsel. So, you know, I, I think um, if, if people haven't seen it, you know, one of the first things I remember seeing of you as a legislator was uh, when you're giving a speech about uh, ESAs and, and your, your son Daniel, mm -hmm. and it's one of the things that we share, we both have uh, children uh, with autism. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about um, that, that experience, because obviously it shaped you, but then also why it, it galvanized you to want to carry that that legislation and why it's then led into some of your advocacy on school choice. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Lisa and I, uh, we, with Daniel, who's now an adult, so this doesn't have any real impact on me as far as the legislation, but what we saw in Daniel was that the public school environment which, and I don't even blame the public schools for this, right? They are, they have a very tough job. They have to be all things to all people, right? Mm -hmm. And so they, they never could get it right for Daniel for mm -hmm. whatever reason, okay? And we didn't really have many choices in that scenario. Lisa and I were blessed enough that we could go find other options. We weren't stuck with, okay, well the art committee said, this is what happens, this is what happens, right? or the guy that told us Daniel didn't have enough gray matter to advance, right? Which just, you know, just set you on fire. Yeah. And um, so I saw us being able, we were able to do all these different things that got Daniel as far as he could get. And, and, and I think actually he could have been a very low functioning person with autism who's turned out to be a very high functioning. And I give a lot of credit to Lisa because she never gave up. We kept looking and kept looking and kept looking and kept finding different things, private options and all that, but we had the money to do that. But I, then I would think about, and it, I don't know why I would use this, but I think about the single mom, mm -hmm. you know, that ends up with that. And Maybe she doesn't even speak good English, you know. Maybe they're they're migrants here and, and, and they're here legally, but they and she doesn't communicate that well. Maybe with this art committee and but she has no other choice, right? And I just thought that's just not right. Why why should her child suffer because of where the money is? Why isn't the money that we've allocated as taxpayers that that we want to we've said we want to help that child, right? Yep. And why does the money have to be so restrictive? Why can't that mom find the best avenue for their child, no matter where it is? Why wouldn't we all want that? Exactly. And so yeah. um, that's how I just, that's where I became passionate about it. And, I'm, and, and, and I believe even though that bill failed, that's probably the most influential thing that I did is it, is it I think it helped create the conversation to continue going, even what we're, you know, luckily enough, talk about in, in uh, this session. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, you know, and, and I've had a similar experience you know, with, with my daughter, you know, she, I, I don't blame the public schools because they're just not equipped to handle all of these kids in different, in the ways they need to be handled. And my daughter was just getting lost, right? And yeah. so she wasn't learning anything. And again, thankfully my wife, who was just a hardcore champion, she's the one who figured out all this stuff and we're blessed enough that we're able to afford these options. And regardless of what happens on uh, school choice legislation, we'll continue to do that no for our kids. That's exactly right. But you know, this I, I was really thinking about this. I did a, uh, 
at, uh, out in Alpine. What's the school out there? Is it uh, Sol Ross? Yeah, uh, yeah. Out in Alpine. I, I, I know, uh, met a professor out there and I've done a few times for them kind of an overview of public policy and what TPF does and things like that. And through that, we were talking about school choice and I kind of mentioned my daughter's story. And there was a single mom in that class that, that, that contacted me and, and said, you know, I have these same issues with my son. I don't know what to do. And, uh, but she's stuck, right? Like she, she doesn't know what to do. She can't afford any private options and her son is, is really struggling. And, and so my, I've, her and my wife have connected and they've, they've she's kind of helped a little bit, but she would, the future this kid could have with, with this option is completely different than where he is right now. And that's, I think, what we're trying to open up is for, for those yeah, and, kids. And you know, Chairman Buckley's first uh, committee sub really, really would have oh, opened yeah. that up. And hopefully that's something they'll end up agreeing on because, it, and it's again, not a negative on public schools, but we have to realize these special kids need special uh, help and they need special education options that will you know, that will help them get as far as they possibly can get. Yeah, that's exactly right. As, you know, as, as parents, and I know as policymakers, you're often trying to figure out like, how do we increase prosperity, but how are we helping people be the best versions of themselves? And, and this is, I, I believe, one of the, the critical ways that we, we can do that and unleash all that potential Absolutely. in the state. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So in your book, one of the things I thought was actually most interesting you talked about was um, people getting stuck and how to get unstuck. And, uh, you know, I've seen this uh, in, in my own life. Sometimes we, we all feel this, like where you feel a little like stuck, like you're not doing enough and you, you can do more. Um, some, and you do see sometimes people coasting. So, uh, you know, I thought that was just really interesting the way you kind of laid that out. So I'd love for you to kind of, for our listeners, expand a little bit about, you know, recognizing when you're stuck and, and, and how you can help uh, yourself get unstuck, how you can work with others to get unstuck, how you can see that in others and help other people when they're, they're feeling stuck. Yeah, and I think the, the main reason that we get stuck is because we in, we're in the wrong place in our wagon in that part of our life, right? We're, we're, maybe we're trying to lead something that we are not prepared to lead yet. Maybe we're, maybe we're not doing enough work. Maybe we're kind of sitting as the cargo, you know, eating bonbons, right? When we need to be <laughs> pushing, right? Yeah, right? And so I think the first thing to do is analyze where wherever you feel like you're stuck in life and a lot of whether it's in a relationship or whether it's in your business analyze okay am i really in the right spot okay and then the other thing to do is to find a mentor that if let's say it's in my business okay and and i feel like i'm just kind of not going anywhere well find somebody that has gone somewhere Okay, further than you, you know, get your ego out of the way a little bit and seek that. Most people want to help other people if they're asked, right? And so I think you have to t do that and you have to, and it's uncomfortable. I talk about taking the next uncomfortable step. Yeah. A lot of people know what the step is. They just don't like to leave their comfort zone, right? I mean, it would have been very easy for me to, uh, to just clip coupons from my business and go play golf all the time, but I, I, and it was uncomfortable to, to go basically from running the show to, to, you know, knocking on doors of people that had a million dogs behind them, you know, trying to bite you. And I'm like, <laughs> and some days I think, what in the world am I doing this for, right? <laughs> right? But it was the right, I would change that. I would not trade that experience for anything. But in order to do that, you have to take an uncomfortable step and you have to have the right guidance on somebody helping you evaluate. Like, hey, I'm stuck. I don't even know why I'm stuck. Look at, this is my life. Tell me where I can be better. Yeah. And you have to find that. 
And, and you know, I think that uh, dovetails nicely into some of the other work that we've done together when it comes to entitlement reform and poverty and homelessness. And, you know, obviously, you know, Bonton Farms and, and, and Dallas has done great things on the homelessness side, Haven for Hope yeah. in San Antonio, uh, Community First here in Austin. We've seen lots of get different things. But, you know, I, I think one of the things we recognize is, is that uh, through this is that there's a dignity in, in, in work, but there's dignity in, expect, in expectations of people and having a, a, a standard for yourself and for, for other people. And so can you talk a little bit about kind of like some of the policies that are, are happening or in the works that, uh, that are maybe either keeping people down um, and then maybe how we're, we can unleash these folks and help them uh, uh, have a, a better life for themselves. Yeah. Well, w one of the things that we found in looking into these entitlement programs is that most entitlement programs function. Maybe they're not designed this way, but they function such that they keep you dependent on that entitlement. And one of the most amazing things that uh, I've learned through this is we had some uh, focus groups from the Bonton Farm area in, in the Dallas and people that had been on government assistance, and some, and in some cases were still on it, some cases had gotten off of it, and we talked to them about it, and, and, and what we find is that they don't want to be on government assistance. At least they don't want to be on it forever, but they don't know how to get off of it because the way the rules are set up, if, if I'm getting some type of housing allowance, okay, and I get a job that's better than the one before, I might lose 100% of that housing allowance because there's no, we call them cliffs, right? Where, where if you make $100, you can get it. If you make $101, you don't get anything. Yep. And so we've learned that those policies are actually doing opposite of what they're intended. And so what we're trying to do, as you know, we're trying to, and it's a slow process, and some of them are at the federal level. So we have to, you know, we can't change everything at the state level, but what we can do is we can make sure that there are not barriers that keep these people from moving forward towards sustainability. And that's workforce development. We have to do a much better job at training a workforce. Not everybody needs to go to college, right? Yep. We need to train our workforce. And we need to train our adult workforce. We can't just train our kids and leave all of these adults out there. Yeah, it's sad that they didn't get trained properly, but we can't just say, okay, well, we'll just start over with these. We, we have to train our adult workforce. We have, to look at, we have to look at ways in which during that training that they can also be working and make a living, right? And there have been some companies uh, like S&B out of Houston, a yeah. big construction firm that have done those types of things. And some of the, the policies that we're doing here, I think will help that. The other thing is that managing the maze of government assistance actually makes it worse too. So there's a bill that's trying to get this in a, what we call a one door policy, right? Where if Greg, you were the person working for the government and I was the person in need, I could come to you and you could guide me, you would be my guide through all the different benefits that I might be temporarily eligible for. And so I think we're doing some good stuff in that. Yeah, because otherwise people are kind of having to go from office to office. And, and, and they, they usually don't have a car. The bus schedule doesn't work exactly right. Uh, it's keeping so them from working that keeping day. Keeping them from working that day. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's crazy. So Yeah, yeah. some of the policies uh, don't make sense. But you're right. A lot of that's actually at the federal level yeah. and dictated by federal policy, which we often see here in Texas is, is one of the things that is most frustrating is some of these federal regulations that, that cause us to do things And I think we're in way. a position now, I do think that we're in a position, some, and we're seeing this more and more, maybe not on these issues yet. I think we, as a state, 
we may have to push the envelope even harder. And yes, the federal purse strings might, but let's just see what they will do, right? Yeah. Maybe they will take money away from us. Maybe they won't, though, right? Yeah. Yeah. You kind of got to prod them a little bit. That's right. That's right. All right. So last last question. So um, you, you talked a little bit about your your, your son Daniel, mm-hmm. um, but you also have a, a daughter who's kind of in this space, and Ali Beth Stuckey, the conservative millennial. Um, big deal to my wife who watches her podcast. <laughs> and so um, I had the, the pleasure of being with you and her a few weeks ago at an event in DC. And that was actually way cooler for my wife than the fact that I sat <laughs> next to Ed Meese at a, at a, at a she, event. Whatever. And Dirk Bentley was there. Yeah. She was way, way more impressed with that. But, you know, obviously she's had a lot of success. And, and, but you, and you touch a little bit on this in the book, but, um, I think one of the coolest thing about being a parent is, is is kind of seeing life through the eyes of your your children, and so you've been able to do that through your son Daniel and your other kids, including Ali Beth. Um, what has been the thing that you've learned the most from your children? Well, I tell That's you what, change your that, perspective. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, from from um, from Daniel, I've learned you know patience, right? Patience and and um, to be thankful for the little victories that mm-hmm. you have, right? Because when, when, you know, Daniel learning to tie his shoes was a huge victory for us, right? And, and you understand how that is. I think from, from, uh, from Allie Beth, what I've learned from her is perseverance. She, she is a little bit like me. She's a determined person. Uh, I, tell, I tell her that she's, uh, you know, uh, my personality with female hormones, which not always a great combination, probably, <laughs> but very, very proud of her because she's absolutely making a difference. She stands yep. strong for what she believes. Her faith is very strong, which is important to us. Um, and I think she's making a difference in a lot of people's lives that, that kind of what I would call almost like a silent group of people that would normally speak up but are thinking the same things. And yep. she's helped give them a voice and encourage them. Uh, so, so perseverance for her, being willing to be bold. And then uh, from, from Justin, uh, what I've, I've learned from Justin, my oldest, uh, who is an assistant U.S. attorney in the San Antonio area, what I've learned from him is kindness because he's, he's just he's a kind person. That's who he is. That's his natural. He's a lot like his mother, just a kind, gentle person, even though he's, you know, six foot three, big guy. <laughs> he's, just, he's always been that way. And that's been a that's really been a blessing because all of those things yeah. are not necessarily uh, I had a little bit of Ali Beth, but the other traits were not natural to me. Yeah. So th- those the Lord has really used those to to teach me along the way, along with you know Lisa for sure. Yeah, well, I'm sure your colleagues in in the house are glad you learned a little kindness and a little yeah. patience. <laughs> I'm sure, <I'm> definitely <laughs> sure of that. Sure. Those are things, but it is amazing. You know, I think about that with my own children all the time, like different things I've learned from them and and uh, how it affects you and changes you over your time. It does. Yeah, yeah. No question about it, 100%. Awesome. Well, Ron, thank you for, for joining us thank today. It's a real pleasure and it's a lot of fun. For those of you watching, if yeah. you haven't read Life Lessons from Little Red Wagon, I actually read this book. You know, people give me books all the time and I have this stack I that know. I'm like, when summer comes and session's over, I'm like, I really got to get through. But I, I read this one on a on an airplane uh, a, a few months ago and yeah. it was well worth the read and, and I think you'll, you'll enjoy it. So. Yeah get it anywhere books are sold so thank you that's right well ron thanks for joining us and uh, to our audience we'll see you on the next episode of the arena